Today we get to continue our series that we're in called We Are Covenant. Uh, last year we sent out a survey to the whole congregation asking uh, basically one question, and it was, it was more of a statement that we left the last word blank. We said, when I think of covenant, I think of blank. When I consider covenant church, here's what comes to mind. And what we were aiming for was a sense of values. What is it that covenant is all about? Who is it uh, that makes this place special, and what is it about these people that call themselves covenant church? or they call themselves followers of Christ, as we expand out further from that, what are the uh, characteristics, what are the values we hold that makes us distinct? And so these are sort of the hallmarks of life here that we've been walking through these past weeks. And today we come to the idea that uh, we are generous. And so I'm going to jump right into it in John chapter 12. We'll put it up on the screen here. If you are in need of a Bible, you don't have one on your way out today, you'll find a whole uh, part of the bookcase there that has all these blue books in it, light blue books. Those are Bibles. Those are free for you. So if you want one of those, you take one. If you have a friend you think that might want one, take one for them too. So let's read from the scripture. It says this, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. They gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, because that's what Martha's do. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment, perfume, made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume and Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. There's a lot to unpack here in this passage. It's really a beautiful passage as as we look at it, and so let me set some of the context. Let me set the scene. Jesus is about a week out from his crucifixion. He's six days from going onto the cross. And so if you imagine, if you knew this was coming and Jesus knows this is coming, you have to imagine that Jesus is beginning to feel the weight of what's about to happen in his life. He's beginning to feel the urgency of the coming crucifixion. And so he's here having this meal with his friend Lazarus. His disciples are there. They're they're all reclining. This is what this would have looked like. Martha is there reclining with them, serving as she goes. Mary, it says, is at his feet, which is the beginning of scandal if you start reading into the context and the culture that Jesus was in. For Mary to be at the feet of Jesus means that Mary was considered one of those in his uh, flock, one of those who would be called his disciples. And this was wildly scandalous. Mary, in the culture, should have been nothing more than Martha. She should have been serving and nothing more. And yet Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, meaning he accepted her as an equal with all the others. So Mary's at the feet of Jesus, the beginning of scandal, and then we see uh, the other gospel accounts say that she breaks an alabaster box that she held, and and in it was perfume, and she begins to pour that perfume upon Jesus' feet. And so we stop for context and go, why would anybody have a giant alabaster box of perfume? And you have to remember that um, it was a bit of a smelly culture. We take for granted this idea that we are uh, relatively decent-smelling human beings, I don't know about you, I try to be. But if you think about this culture, uh, this is a really smelly culture. And you, would, you read accounts in scripture and history, you read all these different places where when people would come to a party, they would actually be given a dab of oil or a dab of perfume. Why? Why are that custom? It's so that if they put a little perfume on you as you came in, it was a blessing to you, but it was a blessing because then you got to smell the perfume they put on you and you didn't have to smell everybody else in the room. This was before modern hygiene, 
This is before modern toothpaste. This is a hot desert climate with lots and lots of sweating. There's no air conditioning. They are just sitting in this room and smelling together. And you start to get a sense of this. When we read the scripture, we read it with our eyes and we think about it with our brains, but we don't actually get to smell it. And I'm glad when I read the story that we can't smell it, because if you could smell it, you would want to leave the room as quickly as possible. Just think about in your own life, count the number of products you use in a given day that have some sort of perfume in them, some sort of smell that is supposed to make you smell less offensive to the rest of us. I woke up today, I took a shower... There was shampoo that is perfumed, and there is soap that is perfumed. And then I got out of the shower, and I dried myself with a towel that had been washed with some sort of perfumed washing liquid. And then they, there was a dryer sheet in there, which, because the cuddly bear is on the box, it means it must be more cuddly if the dryer sheet's in there, and it smells good. And so then I dry myself with this perfumed cloth. I get out of that, and I put these clothes on, dried the same way with all of their perfume on them. I then brush my teeth, more covering, and I put some stuff in my hair, because it's getting longer, it's so flowing, and I'm not going bald at all, don't look. It's not a receding hairline, it's a style. But it smells lovely, and I love the way it smells, and I spritz a little something on me, so if you come up after church and hug me, you'll go, oh, she smells good. And all of these things I've done to cover up the odor that I rightly carry, and 2,000 years ago, no one was doing that stuff. And so you go to a house party, you walked there from down the street in 100 degree weather and everybody's wearing sandals and it's dusty and it's smelly and it smells terrible. And so for her to break this box and to begin to pour it on his feet, there's something really interesting going on here. Mary pours all of the perfume out. She doesn't dab it on one at a time. She takes the entire box and pours it upon the feet of Christ. This is wildly unpractical. The disciples even call it wasteful. Uh, growing up, my little sister was, would make potions, she would call them. Sometimes she'd call them perfumes. Often they were potions. I think a lot of little girls do this. Little girls don't get any ideas. When my mother wasn't looking, she would sneak into the bathroom. She would grab all of her expensive perfumes, and she would take a bowl with her, and she would begin to pour the perfumes into a bowl. To that, because she needed to make them beautiful and more lovely, she would add things like bubbles, sparkles, some herbs, maybe some oregano, something she could find in the kitchen, whatever you can reach. And she would get them in there and mix them up and there'd be this bubbling, horrific cauldron of herbs and spices, better for chicken than for people. And then she would present it to my mother. Mom, I made you a perfume. To which my mom would hang her head and go, I'm so afraid to see what's on the bathroom counter because she would go in and find every expensive perfume that she had, an empty bottle, and they were all in the bowl. To which she would rightly feel, what a waste. And yet the intentions were good, weren't they? When Mary does this, when Mary makes a potion, as it is, the others are apoplectic. They can't believe it. The disciples are angry. Judas is singled out for his rage. He says, 300 denarii, that's a year's wages. In Mark 14, it says he rebuked her harshly. The word there in Greek says it, it means to bellow with anger. The disciples in unison bellow with anger when she begins to pour out this perfume. That's the same word that they used when the disciples arrived at Lazarus' tomb after he had died. When your friend dies and you arrive to find him dead, you bellow with anger, with sorrow, with mourning. And it's the same word that the Gospels use to talk about how they felt when they saw her dumping out this perfume upon the feet of Jesus. They were wailing. 
They don't get it. What's really happening here? Mary is exhibiting gospel generosity. This is not just perfume, because unless they were fabulously wealthy, wealthy Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and, and all the indications from Scripture don't give us any sense that they were, then this was their life savings. There was no 401k. There was no checking account. This was their savings. This was the heirloom passed down from generation to generation. It was all of their future security in one box, a year's wages, 30, 40, 50, $60,000 in a box, and she dumps it on the feet of Christ. And the feet were the most reprehensible thing in the culture. That's why when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, they had no idea what to do because you don't touch someone else's feet unless you're a slave because there's nothing more vile. There's nothing smellier. There's nothing more disgusting. The feet, you would never go near them. And she pours out her life savings on his feet and then dries it with her hair. It's an insane extravagance. I wish when we read this passage, we would actually read it for what it says. I, I, I like to read it and think that as the perfume is splashing, as this extravagance grows and the disciples are wailing and the perfume is just spilling out onto the dusty floor around his feet, Mary isn't saying, I hope you smell better. Mary is saying, with every ounce that pours out all of my worldly goods and every ounce of my security, I pour out on you. They are no longer in this box. They are in you and you alone. See, gospel generosity is a product of security. Gospel generosity is a product of security. That when we are secure in Christ, we can be generous in the gospel. The inverse is true. Where we give, where our money goes, what our checkbook says, what our debit statement, what our credit card bill, where it tells us we spend our money is the true diagnostic of where we find security. Do we find it in entertainment? Do we find it in status? Do we find it in love? Do we find it in anything less than Christ? I had a friend in San Antonio who was a relatively new believer. We were in our late 20s. He was living one street up, and we had sort of this sort of relatively hippie community that we all lived in this really run-down neighborhood and we were buying houses and trying to, to help the people around us and lift it up. And he's a new believer and, and he got a new car, which meant between he and his wife, there were two and they had three cars now. And he knew that there was someone living with us, a young guy that was living with us, who uh, only had a bike. By choice, he only had a bike. He liked to ride around. It was kind of his, uh, his hippie moment, if you will, that he was only going to take this bike, and it was his show of sort of um, a vow of poverty, if you will, which is a really uh, impressive thing. It was a really admirable thing because he was committed to it. It wasn't for his glory. He just wanted to be faithful, did not use his money on gas. He wanted to be his own gas. But in San Antonio, it's 175 degrees all summer. And so he I don't know this. I did not actually smell them a lot. But I would imagine riding your bike around San Antonio all summer would leave you smelling about like the disciples did that day. It's just a hassle. It's a long way, 10 miles to anything. And it, so he was really going out of his way and spending all of his life on this bike. And our friend, our new believer friend, has this third car. And he goes, you know what? I think I'm going to give it to him. Which is a really remarkable thing to do because he wasn't doing it out of some religious obligation. He wasn't doing it to impress anybody. He really, in the quiet of his own heart, just said, I think I just want to give him my extra car. So he walks the keys down the street and hands him a car. Now, the story takes a little bit of a weird turn as our friend who rides the bike has this car and he drives it around for a couple of days and he gets to thinking about it and he goes, You know what I think I'd rather do? I think I'm going to sell the car. So he sells the car. 
And the friends around us, we, we kind of didn't know what to do about it. We're kind of like, is that allowed? Like, you gave him a gift. You, can you sell the gift? And Cody, I said, Cody, are you okay? Is that, is that a problem for you? Cody comes over and he goes, no. I have all the car I need. I gave him the car because I don't need the car. So if he wants to ride the car, he can drive the car. If he wants to sleep in the car, he can sleep. If he wants to sell it, he can sell it. I'm, I'm okay with it. And this moment of kind of gospel maturity was an evidence of gospel security that Cody knew he was secure in having two cars. What happened to this third car after he gave it away wasn't really his concern. And it was rooted in his security and that he had transportation. He didn't have to worry about what happened to the transportation he had given away. And this is the, the reflection of what Mary has done, is that Mary is not worried about what happens to the perfume as it splashes on the dirt. Because she's secure in the fact that all that she used to have in that perfume, the worldly security and the, the safety net was now in Christ and Christ alone. So not only is the gospel rooted in security, but we also see that the gospel and gospel generosity is rooted in grace. That true gospel generosity is rooted in grace. And we witness this in our community all the time. Do people that are willing to enter into the foster system, that are willing to adopt those that don't otherwise have a home. That we have families all over this community that are willing to lay their lives down because there are a few things I can think of that are more costly to a family emotionally in every single way, more costly than opening your house out to those who weren't naturally born into your house and taking them in and going, we will be your family. And yet family after family And this church does it. And it's a beautiful picture of grace. It's especially beautiful uh, singling out Bethany Jenkins because she was adopted and now she fosters children. And she becomes the bridge to them finding forever home. She becomes the bridge to them finding adoptive parents or being reunited with their uh, birth parents when that situation is, is remedied. And I think about her every time I think about this sort of grace generosity mixture. Because who would know better what it means to find a forever family than someone who was adopted into one themselves? Who knows better how to give grace than people who've been given grace themselves? The other thing I see in this passage is I see that much of this passage, to me anyway, when I read it, is really about opportunity. It's about opportunity. Notice what happens. Mary sees Jesus in her presence, and so she grabs her prized possession and pours it out on him. She sees an opportunity to bless Jesus and then does it. She was ready for the opportunity. See, the heart that belongs to Jesus sees opportunities for generosity everywhere. The chronology is important in this story as we walk through it. So Mary blesses Jesus, and if you read the Gospel of Matthew and his telling of the story, he says, immediately following this pouring out of the perfume that Judas, Judas leaves. It says in Matthew 24, 26, 14 through 16, he says, one of the 12, Judas Iscariot, who went to the chief, he went to the chief priests and asks, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out 30 pieces of silver and from then on Judas watched for what? Opportunity to hand him over. That Mary was watching for an opportunity to bless Jesus and when she found it, she acted radically and did it. Judas was looking for an opportunity to sell him out. And when he found the opportunity, he acted on it. Do you see the juxtaposition here? Mary is looking for opportunity. Judas is too. Mary sold every ounce of her future to bless Jesus. She is sold out for Christ. Judas sold every ounce of his integrity to profit off of Jesus. He sold Jesus out. The eyes focused on self, 
look for opportunities to get. Eyes focused on Jesus look for opportunities to give. It's a pretty simple equation. It's also true that there are people that are so focused on giving that they have great ambition to get because they know that whatever they get just becomes more fuel they get to give. And that's a beautiful thing when when Christ inhabits somebody and we truly carry that generosity with us that that every ounce of wealth, every extra penny, every extra relationship, every extra network connection, every extra room in our house becomes one more thing. We go, how can I leverage this for Jesus? The diagnostic for us, of course, is that money reveals what we worship because we leverage everything to get more of what we worship. In all of our lives, my argument would be that we leverage everything we have to get more of what we truly worship. And so if you worship status, you begin to leverage everything in your life to gain status. If you worship materialism, you begin to leverage things in your life to gain more material. If you love Jesus first and foremost, if you worship Christ, then you begin to leverage all the parts of your life to get more of the Christ life in you. Mary leveraged wealth for more Jesus. Judas leveraged Jesus for more wealth. This is why the scamming televangelist irks you. Because something in it's not right. Something in it feels like he is leveraging Jesus for personal gain. And something in that, in our souls, just makes us feel a little icky. This is why Facebook and Google should irk you. Promise that you get to use these lovely services to connect with loved ones. To search for anything in the world. We all think that we're the customer of Facebook and Google, but it turns out that we're the product of Facebook and Google. See, what Facebook and Google and all the other internet and social apps, what they do is they want to take your attention and then they sell it to an advertiser. So they make no money because you log in. They make money because you log in and you spend time and see people, people pay for ads. And so Facebook and Google, they irk me because I know that what they say they're there for, I want to connect you to people and make your life better, is not actually what they're there for. They're there to grab my attention, get me addicted, and then sell my attention to advertisers. And their stock's doing pretty well as a result. And it's something in us is like, man, there's just something not right about that. Because we're being sold out. Because we are being leveraged for someone else's agenda. That betrayal reveals what's really happening in that relationship. The same is true when we think about our relationship with Christ. Are we leveraging our lives for Jesus or are we leveraging Jesus for the thing we want in our lives? Judas did this, leveraged Jesus for profit. Scripture says he got 30 pieces of silver, which is equivalent of about 600 bucks. Son of God, the King of Kings, comes down to earth and he has sold, his life is sold for $600 for a big TV from Walmart. On the other end, 300 denarii, this year's wage is 30, 40, 50, 60,000 dollars that Mary pours out upon Jesus' feet. Covenant has long been a church marked as a congregation with a heart like Mary's, with wealth that has been poured out over and over and over in a thousand ways, both as an organization and as individuals within the organization. Over and over, you look around the city and you see monuments of the generosity of a community like this. The trick is you never see the covenant name on them because the hearts of the people who made them happen were not for glory, but for the kingdom. And it's a beautiful thing. We'll get to tell this story at our new member lunch. We have 32 adults come in that want to look into what would it be like to join a community like this? 
my, my hope is that there are people coming to lunch and want to join a community like this because they sense that there's something different happening. That there's some sort of radical gospel generosity happening here. That there's a heart to, to go and bless the community out of this place. To give our lives for something greater. But what the story we're going to tell is about the pregnancy center and about kids count and about open homes and about all these different things that have been started or blessed along the way. Talk about ministries that ransom people out of sexual slavery, about ministries that that bring food to the people who are hungry in our community, ministries that are meeting people's needs on the street every single day that are transforming lives, and none of them are called the Covenant Church Food Bank because it isn't about getting glory. It's about giving glory. I've heard so many stories, and I don't want to tell specific ones. I don't want to steal people's private blessings, but this is a community marked by the pouring out of blessing and the making of deep impacts as a result, that neighborhoods and regions and even the world have been changed, that people in this church have set up shell companies outside of their normal lives and work in businesses and such so that they might buy assets in other communities and redeem them for Christian kingdom purposes just quietly, anonymously taking over parts of the community and taking over parts of this region and saying, we will see this use for God. It's gospel generosity. It's funny, when I talk about money, it's never about getting uh, the boxes filled up on the wall. It's never to get anyone to double their recurring donation. It has nothing to do with those things. When we talk about money in the church, it's always because we're talking about hearts in the church. Jesus talked more about money than anything else. You go back and you can, you can look it up yourself about sex or sin or love, any of it. Jesus doesn't talk about heaven nearly as much as he talks about money because money is the truest indicator of what we're really about. It reveals what we worship. It reveals our hearts. And, and yet when we hear the pastor's going to talk about money, something in us just sort of, oh gosh, And we get the vision of the televangelist in our mind and our spine kind of stiffens and we go, here we go again. And we sort of of create this hardness around us like if I can just like kind of deflect all this nonsense he's going to throw, then I can leave here with my wallet intact. We were in San Antonio in December and I was going to preach at our old church. They invited me to preach and I said, well, what can I speak on? Like, what is it that you need me to say? What what topic? Is there a theme? Is there something I can help you with? And, And what they said was no. Whatever, whatever God tells you to say. I was like, well, that's a lot of freedom. So yeah, let me pray about it. So I pray about it for a couple of weeks and I came to Steph and I said, hey, I think I know what I'm preaching about in December. And she goes, yeah, what's that? I said, money. <laughs> she goes, what? <laughs> no, no, you're not. And I was like, yeah, 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 I am. She's like, that's not what guest preachers preach about. You get to say anything you want. You can like go and make the people feel good and, and we can go and no one has to think that you're shilling for dollars. And I was like, I know, I know. I'm not supposed to preach about money, except I'm totally supposed to preach about money, so I'm going to go preach about money. And she goes, oh gosh, you're going to preach about money. We got there, and they're sitting in my mom's kitchen, and she goes, I'm excited to get to hear you preach. I don't get to hear you very often. And so, um, you know, what are you going to preach about? I'm excited. What's the topic? And I was like, oh, here we go. Uh, you know, money. <laughs> exact same conversation. Why, why would you ever talk about money? What is the point of talking about money? You're the guest preacher. You don't talk about money. That's their problem. I was like, well, that's what God said to do. Even my family, when I say I'm going to talk about money, they're like, oh, can we not go? (laughs) We'll listen on the podcast. We sit in the church that morning and we're 
I'm watching as the rehearsal goes through and there, you know, one step as the service is going through after another and the rehearsal is happening and then on their, their jumbotron, big screens, the pastor comes up and it's during their announcement part of their service and he's giving an announcement to the church. It says, hey, I want to be transparent with you. A few years ago, we had a fire that burned the whole church down and then we had some staff losses and we had some hurdles and we've had some struggles and I just got to be honest that as we finish 2018, we're finishing pretty deep in the red. And I went, that's why I'm talking about money. I didn't know. No one told me. And I walked in and what I had to preach to the people was, look, don't think they hired me as a gun to come in here and tell you how to, you know, separate you from your wallet here. God told me this a couple months ago, and then he's up here saying that, and then I don't know. Maybe it's something we've got to pay attention to. Because even I'm sensitive to the fact when I say money, people go, oh, here we go. But it has nothing to do with money. Jesus uses money to help see ourselves clearly. He reminds us that he came to bring us so much more than what we settle for. More life, more hope, and then what he does is when we recognize all that he's given us, he then challenges us to give it away. Just like when he gave his life for us, our hope and grace and life was freely given to us through Jesus' life and death and resurrection. That you and I walked into the world, uh, to use a money term, in debt. In debt because of sin. We were bought with a price, though. Scripture says that the cost of our life was the life of Christ. The, The ransom paid for us was paid on the cross. And so there is no greater generosity and no greater love than anyone can ever know than having someone else lay their life down on our behalf. And we know that generosity personally. We know gospel generosity in a way that none outside the faith can know. Jesus gave his life that we might know him in, in that life, that we might know true life in him. And so in following him, we've been invited to do just the same, to begin to pour out our lives upon others, to begin to break the alabaster boxes of our idols and pour them out onto others that they might be blessed and lifted up, that we might fight injustice in the city, that we might lift up those who have no help of their own. It's what we've been called to. It's what I hope that as we breathe our last breaths one day, that you and I will have people say about us. For all their talents and all their abilities, for all their... uh, uniqueness for the way they have this family or that job, that ultimately what it comes down to is this, this person. Gosh, they love Jesus so much. They would give anything for him. So in closing, I want to tell you a story about a man named Ronnie Russell. I got to meet uh, this guy this summer at a wedding. Uh, Hannah and Garrett some folks in our community were getting married in Chicago, and Ronnie is Hannah's dad. So Ronnie is the father of the bride, and he welcomes us, and it's just this beautiful wedding on this golf course in Chicago, and the weather is perfect, and they're getting married outside in front of this beautiful big pond on the golf course, and there's even these two swans. It's like a scene out of a movie, and then my family reminded me that those swans were concrete, and that's why they hadn't moved through the service, but it was a beautiful picture. We go through this beautiful wedding, and, and Ronnie is the dad of four daughters, Hannah being his youngest. So he gives Hannah away to Garrett and just gives this beautiful speech. The whole room is crying. He then has his dance with her, and I'm supposed to be the MC of the reception because I did the wedding, and now I've got this microphone, and I'm standing in the corner just weeping, watching them dance because I have two daughters, and I'm like, I hope they look at me like that.
Sadly, two weeks ago, Ronnie unexpectedly passed away. He was on a walk with his wife when he had an unexpected heart attack. And yet what his family would tell you is that his life was a testament of deep grace, that his greatest wealth was in knowing Jesus, and that you didn't have to talk to him long to know about it. And his family shared the story on Facebook, so I feel freedom to share it with you. My prayer is I might extend his legacy just a little bit further, because it's a great one. They tell the story of his last hours. That two hours before that walk with his wife, before he breathed his last breath here, before his life transitioned into a greater hope, he was texting with a friend. A friend had texted him asking about some health issues he was dealing with. His friend was suffering from some health issues and wanted to know more about Ronnie's struggle with health. See, Ronnie had had a, a heart surgery a couple of years ago, and the friend was in something similar and wanted to know what to expect, wanted to get some comfort about it. So the last thing that Ronnie wrote before he went to be with Jesus, the last written words of communication in his life were a text to this friend who was asking about some health issues. Quote, Thanks for asking about my heart. It's not the same as it used to be, that's for sure. But I, too, am grateful to God for extending my days for my family's sake. Of course, I would be better off if the Lord would just take me, since I have a wonderful hope in heaven. Because of the work and the power of Jesus, I can confidently look forward to the life to come with a new and imperishable body. We haven't talked about it, but I sure hope you had that confidence too. I'd love to talk to you about it sometime because we are never more transparent and real than when we recognize and accept that we are all terminal at any moment. Two hours later, Ronnie's hope was realized. That the final thing he said with his life was to tell a friend who was asking about health about the hope in Jesus. This is gospel generosity in the most perfect way. To hear his family tell it, Ronnie's life was dedicated to pouring out grace at every turn. And he was powered by deep grace, and as a result, he became a vessel of grace to everyone who knew him. And so even in moments when he had no idea if he had days, weeks, or years left to live, he lived them all like his last And he gave of himself openly and freely. He put himself in vulnerable positions with relationships that some might know Jesus, that some might understand the grace that he knew. I would say that that is a beautiful life of gospel generosity, and I hope his story continues to go out and inspires the rest of us. Because I save up my treasure for a better time. I save up my treasure for a better conversation. I save up the grace that it might be a more perfect time to have this talk with somebody. It might be a more perfect time to donate later. It might be a better time to walk across the street to my neighbor. And what Ronnie teaches me is there is no better time than now. To break the alabaster box and just pour our lives out on others because you do not know what tomorrow might bring. We are a people of gospel generosity. We don't give so that we might get. We get to give. So we are and will continue to be a church that leverages all that God has poured out on us that we might use our days to pour it out as an offering upon others, an offering to God. 
May we, like Mary, may we, like Ronnie, be so generous in every facet of our lives that we leave no doubt where our true security really is, that others might know that we follow this Jesus unashamedly, unapologetically, because our lives speak it so clearly. In Christ alone, our hope is found. May our lives evidence that for all to know such hope. May we be the kind of place that is filled with gospel generosity, that we might know Jesus so deeply that we cannot help but make him known for others. We are covenant church. We are generous. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am grateful for the story in Scripture. I'm grateful for Mary. I'm grateful for Ronnie, the stories of our everyday lives. To be reminded of the beauty of selling our lives out that we might extend you to others that we might bless you in some way or bring you glory in some way. Father, in our, in our hearts in these moments, when we think about and we take stock of our lives, there's often times we feel guilt or shame. We feel conviction of the places that we've not yet begun to surrender to you where our security is in something less. So, Father, I pray that you would, A, show us those places clearly, and then, B, forgive us. Forgive us as an invitation into living fully for you. Father, there is no life like life in you. There is no hope like hope in you. Our prayer in this moment is that, God, we might be a people of incredible, radical gospel generosity. So form us, shape us, align our days that when our days are done, people might look and say, that was a person that was truly about God. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.